a traditional song from the boys. That uh, was uh, released as formerly the Warlocks box set. It was recorded at Hampton Coliseum in Hampton, Virginia. Talking with Brian Mixis this week, and he went to those shows, and out of all the Grateful Dead concerts that he caught, he says that those Hampton Coliseum shows in 89 were among one of his favorites that he's ever attended. I would have to say that that was pretty darn up there. Not only did those shows stand out musically, but another highlight was that the band went on as the Warlocks. In 1989, the band was on fire. They just had a top ten hit and a memorable video on MTV with Touch of Grey. The success introduced thousands of new deadheads into the fold, and it introduced a new term into the parking lots. Those new fans that were uh, bringing the party, they were simply known as touchheads. Touch of gray, deadheads. So as a way to keep out the inevitable deadhead invasion that followed the band everywhere, instead of putting Grateful Dead on the concert tickets, they printed them out, so they said, formerly the Warlocks. When fans arrived at the gig those nights, the marquee read, The Warlocks. Non-deadheads passing the Coliseum definitely were confused, seeing a band that they never even heard of headlining the arena. And that, of course, was the point. They wanted to make sure tickets went into the right hands. And to make that a step farther, they, uh, tickets went on sale at local outlets only, and that was 10 days before the concerts. Yeah, that's right. I remember wiring money down to a friend of mine who lived in the area and he went to the local record store that sold the tickets because yeah we couldn't get them otherwise it goes without saying that the x factor was alive and well those october evenings in 1989 for brian mixes those shows had an impression on him even before he walked into the venue walking across the parking lot and i hear this banjo and i thought that's interesting. What's going on there? So I walk over to the car and I listen for a minute and it's, you know, somebody's car in the parking lot. And the tune finished and I asked what it was and they said, oh, that's Jerry with his first wife playing bluegrass. And I'm like, what? What is this? And that started all this. Before becoming a psychedelic guitar player in the Grateful Dead, even before the band had picked up their electric instruments and called themselves the Warlocks, Jerry Garcia was already living a life completely dedicated to music. This music was bluegrass. Uh, my name is Jerry Garcia. I play banjo in the old-timey songs and guitar in the bluegrass songs and do a lot of lead singing, too, which I'm not proud of. I grew up in a musical household, but the first time I decided that it was something I wanted to do was when I heard five-string banjo. Earl Scruggs played five-string banjo. I fell in love with the sound, and I, I thought I, that that's something I have to be able to do. I didn't really start to get serious about music until I heard my first bluegrass music. Brian Mixis, he wanted to hear that music. So I started collecting all the cassettes, which sounded terrible. Now, we're not talking about poor quality audience tapes from the Fillmore in the 70s. We're talking Jerry Garcia music in 1961 to 1964. But Brian Mixis, his mind was set. He wanted to know Jerry Garcia before the dead. Not only did I get myself some upgrades, but I actually got the master tape. She's gone, but I don't worry. No, I'm sitting on top of the world. 
And now you get to listen to those master tapes. A collection of Jerry Garcia's earliest known performances was released earlier this month on the 11th. It's a retrospective box set. It is titled Before the Dead. Somebody who picks up this box is going to get a really strong sense of the full arc that Garcia went through from 61 to 65. All the way from simple folk songs through old time music and when he first gets introduced to bluegrass and really starts to dig deeply into how to play the banjo and wanting to master the banjo. And the whole sort of last phase of this is exactly just that. He actually steps back from singing much on stage, in fact, and really concentrates on playing. Brian Mixis, he also contributed extensive liner notes, which are part of a 32-page book included in the collection. You're also going to get track-by-track essays, listening notes from musicologist Neil Rosenberg. You're also going to get rare photos, rare memorabilia, and of course, rare music. So any fan of any sort has really never heard this material. The only place you've heard it is there were a couple snippets that were played in the first few minutes of the Long Strange Trip Amazon film. She shared it with those guys. And so you get maybe a t- couple 10, 15 second segments there. Is it queued up? I don't... We met sometime in March. So that's 1961. And then my birthday is the end of May. Jerry and Bob sang, played. You can get the box set Before the Dead. It's available both as a 5LP limited edition collection and also a 4CD set, and it is filled with hidden treasures. One of the other things that we were able to do was find several master tapes. So, for example, you might have heard the same Wildwood Boys tape from your, you know, deadhead collecting years as I did. But nobody's ever heard it from the master before. And there's a couple instances of, of that where you probably, you may have some of these same songs on a, on a cassette, you know, of umpteen generations, but you've never heard it from the master. A lot of those scratchy and rough tapes started to circulate because a longtime Grateful Dead publicist and author, Dennis McNally, he had a huge role in Before the Dead box set, and he started laying down that groundwork almost 30 years ago. In the early 80s, he started to do interviews for what became Long Strange Trip. He interviewed people like Rodney Albin, and then people who don't know that name, that is Peter Albin's older brother, Peter Albin, who later formed Big Brother and the Holding Company. Well, you know you got it, So while Dennis McNally was interviewing icons of rock, psychedelic, and experimental music, he would always slide in a question about Jerry Garcia's bluegrass era. By the way, do you happen to have any recordings? And sure enough, those tapes started popping up, and as expected, these tapes, well, I guess you could say there was a tale of the tape. The first tape, for example, comes from uh, Jerry's first girlfriend, who held on to it. And I think, you know... That was a really important special time for her in her life. We met sometime in March. So that's 1961. And then my birthday is the end of May. Jerry and Bob sang, played. That recording certainly meant something very, very special to her. Luckily, Dennis and her were friends, and I think it was, you know, there was a conversation that they had where she agreed to do this. Another tape that they received was from a student of Jerry's. He actually got guitar lessons from Jerry Garcia back in the day. 
in a lot of ways, this is a collective scrapbook of memories. You know, this isn't some great fidelity. It's pretty good for what it is. I mean, I'm pleased with it. I look at this as more of a scrapbook, and Dennis and I agreed, and he sort of says it in his liner notes at the beginning, that we kind of looked at this like a folkways project, right? If you listen back to some of the folkways recordings. Want to build me log cabin on a mountain so high so I can see Willie as he goes on by. You know, those were field recordings. Those were done with whatever they had, the best that they could do at the time. Often, uh, you know, the big machine that Lomax would drive around and keep in the trunk of his car. And they'd record people on their front porches or in the front room, and it would be one microphone. And they were very rough. But they were songs that nobody had ever heard before, and they were really exciting. I mean, certainly, you, to hear Garcia talking about it, there's several interviews where he does talk about this. Um, or anybody else. It was just a really exciting music because this stuff wasn't available. She wobbles as she flies. She never hollers cuckoo till the fourth day July. Taping concerts, music has a long tradition in music and Grateful Dead, but it also rings true with uh, Jerry Garcia. He himself was a taper, and he loved taping concerts of his favorite bluegrass musicians. Being able to go and see one of your heroes, like Bill Monroe or the McReynolds or someone like that, if they could also record it and then study how they played and what they played, you know, that was just a, that was the treasure. It wasn't sort of like, oh, I have this tape, I have that tape. It was more like, I now know how to play these songs like these guys. There was a sense of collection with taping your favorite bluegrass musicians, but at the time, one of the main reasons why Jerry and his fellow musicians were taping was because they wanted to learn the songs. It was the musicians who were originating and driving the tradition of taping. Another factor Mixus points out was the economics of taping. So much of it wasn't available on disc, you know, records or any other medium for them. So they would record live shows to learn new songs. They certainly had their share of folkway stuff, and everybody shared what they had, too, right? But he was a guitar teacher. He didn't hold down another job. He ended up having a wife and a daughter, and he wasn't making a lot of money. So I don't think there was a ton of money spent on records. Taking a look at Jerry's tapes and his bluegrass music breastfeeding phase, you can definitely see that he was consuming music at a record pace. Mixus points out that this ultimately helped Garcia, the music he played, and the people around him. My sense of, of, of Jerry when he started to dig deeper into the records is, you know, he wanted to play. He wanted to, learn, he wanted to play everything. He wanted to learn every song. He wanted to learn how to play every part. And in order to play live, of course, you have to have people that have ability. And I think over the course of the revival for him, one of the hardest things was to find enough people who knew how to play enough things to keep any sort of quote-unquote band together. So, in other words... He learned as many parts as he could, I think, because if a band needed a fiddle player, well, then that's what he'd be. Throughout his life, Jerry was always known as a team player. He had no problem stepping out of the spotlight so he could fill a particular gap. From all accounts that Mix assert, Jerry was very versatile, which is another attribute Jerry carried with him throughout his life. Taking a look at the musician credits on Before the Dead box set, you could see that Jerry played a wide range of instruments. He would play pretty much anything at any time. 
in any situation. And it was, everybody was learning. I think that's the thing you have to remember. They were all teenagers. And so they were all learning this stuff at the same time. You know, he may have had a really gregarious personality and he may have had, a, you know, a bit more of a sense of humor. Um, and he may have been a little more pushy to maybe get to play in front of people more often than other people. But he was still learning just as anybody else was. And he was too stubborn to get a job. So he had tons of time on his hands to learn how to play everything. And he spent, you know, you talk to Sarah, his first wife, and she'll tell you, it was hours and hours and hours a day of learning one lick. He felt that he had connected with something really pure and really authentic and would practice all the time. And I found bluegrass music to be really tiresome. Whatever he got stuck on that day, he would spend all day on. Getting to hear Jerry as a youngster is definitely a treat on the Before the Dead box set. He was fearless about learning how to play, voracious on wanting to learn everything, and playing with anybody and everybody. You could take a look at some of the band names like the Sleepy Hollow Hog Stompers, Heart Valley Drifters, the Wildwood Boys, Black Mountain Boys, Asphalt Jungle Mountain Boys. Mixer says that jumping from band to band actually had a lot to do with his age and the musicians around him. They were doing different things and, you know, <laughs> Maybe their mom and dad wouldn't let them out that weekend, and all of a sudden the band broke up. I mean, honestly, there are plenty of stories of even that simple, of reasons why one band broke up and another didn't. But, you know, college took precedent. You know, they, they, were, they were a band when everybody was in town. And, in fact, that's very true to one of his best friends of, the, of that era, Marshall Lester. Jerry Garcia, Marshall Lester, they were members of the Sleepy Hollow Hog Stompers. However, Lester was a student at Yale, so the band would only perform during the summer and winter. But when Lester went back to school, the show was done, the band was done. Other than losing a friend for a while, a band's turnover really didn't slow Jerry down. In fact, the coming and going of musicians, it just helped him become a better musician. That was on the road, and it also helped him later down the road. His life was music. Think about how many days he played on the road, how many songs he must have known. And to be as versatile as to go between, you know, whether it was with Merle Saunders. Or JGB. If he catches up with me, I'll spend my life in jail. To David Grisman, to the Back to the Dead. You know, and, and yet sort of have some sense of what each of those songbooks look like. It's pretty staggering. I mean, I, I can't think of another musician in the history of music who has been that versatile over, you know, over, over sort of that, those short periods of time. I lit up from Reno, I was trailed by 20 hounds. Didn't get to sleep that night till the morning came around. Sit out, run, but I take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. I get home before daylight, just like gets some sleep tonight. 
one month he'd be touring with one band, one version of his of his act, and another month it'd be back to the dead, and somehow not miss a beat with the repertoire. You're listening to Dead Air. I'm Corey Daniels. We're chatting it up with Brian Mixis and Before the Dead, Jerry Garcia, Before the Dead. That's the name of the box set that came out on the 11th of this month. You can get it as a 5LP limited edition collection, also a 4CD set. The first thing you, you get on side one is um, a really simple recording done at a birthday party of one of his first girlfriends, Barbara Meyer. Her father had decided to uh, borrow a tape recorder that he had access to at where he, where he worked. And Robert Hunter was there as well, and the two of them just played really simple folk songs. Now, what's unique about this tape is a number of things. One, it's the earliest thing that, as far as I know, that anybody has heard. I don't, I don't know that anything else exists. Um, if it does, it, it's certainly not known to me. It has never circulated before. Although Robert Hunter would never play in the Grateful Dead, he was just as important as the musicians. He wrote some of the finest Grateful Dead lyrics. Now, Hunter wasn't the only guy who was with Jerry in the early days. Pigpen was was very much a part of the revival. He was very good friends with the Alban Brothers and performed with them. You know, he, and imagine he was even younger. He was like 15 when he started hanging out in that crowd. But anybody that I've ever met who was there at the time when all these guys were teenagers and you know trying to play folk music, trying to play bluegrass, trying to learn it all, all blues, whatever it was, everybody says nobody was better than Pig Ben. That he was he was the most authentic musician playing what he wanted to play of anybody. Baby, please. For bluegrass hardcores, there's names on the box set that will definitely ring bells. Well, certainly Sandy Rothman is the name that probably most people who are interested in this set and and pick this up are going to recognize. Sandy was somebody who came in to uh, join in the Black Mountain Boys in early 64. And they did this trip shortly thereafter where they went across country and really took a deep dive into bluegrass and came, uh, but Sandy stayed. Sandy actually played the rest of the summer in Bill Monroe's band. So he has his own, you know, enormous kind of piece of history there. Jerry's Rolodex of musicians was just as extensive as his music knowledge. My sense is that Jerry was always the guy with the door open. Everybody was welcome, and I don't think he ever didn't welcome those connections and didn't honor that that history, that past. You know, that past, I think, was always important to him. This was a special time in Jerry's life. It was a special time for his fellow musicians, and it was also a good time to be a bluegrass fan. The whole thing that the folk revival of the early 60s did was, I mean, it just, it expanded the audience for the whole genre. It was about possibilities, and they were in the air, they were just in the air, and everybody was also waiting with the sense of something is about to happen. It was just like everybody knew it, you know, everybody was waiting for this thing to happen, something was gonna happen. And everybody did what they could to make it happen. I gotta believe that even the masters like Monroe and the McReynolds and all of that, all those guys were thrilled to pieces that all these young people were interested to play. Because that meant there were more festivals, there were more people coming, more people learning the music. I, I got to believe that they were thrilled to death.
I mean, it really it expanded the, the numbers, I think, to a really great degree. This set features the early bluegrass days of Jerry Garcia, recordings that were done in 1961. By summer of 1964, Jerry was changing. A lot of this had to do with a road trip that he took with his bluegrass buddy, Sandy Rothman. And the trip, I think, told him a number of things, about not only about music and about the rest of the country, which he really hadn't seen before, um, but also about himself. Things were segregated. It was really kind of a rough place to be out there. And here's this guy that's dark-complected and clearly looks not quite white, and he's got his Jewish friend with him, and they, you know, they had a tough time out there at certain places. Um, they were looked at with a canted eye on many occasions. And one of the reasons that they went on this trip was Previously, Bill Monroe had given him the idea that he thought Jerry should audition because Monroe's then banjo player, uh, Bill Keith, who, was, uh, who you'll learn about when you buy the set, had left the band, and Bill was looking for somebody new. And the idea was that Jerry might audition for him. Well, he never did it. Well, you know, why he didn't, those, you know, everybody's got their own answer, but the real one is gone. We'll never know for sure. Um, but he made a choice not to do that. Now, Sandy did have an opportunity and, in fact, stayed and played with him that summer. And Jerry went home by himself. So clearly there was, you know, I think a very serious sort of transformation he went through during that, that trip, which happened in May, June of 64 which was the same trip where he met David Grissom as well. But even though he loved the music, um, I think he saw his future in it as being even more unclear than before he left. Jerry loved bluegrass, but he was transforming as a man and a musician. Bluegrass wasn't a hit in the Bay Area. The bluegrass fan base was small, and by this time, music was being transformed. The Beatles happened. I mean, let's get real. Like, you know, the writing was sort of on the wall. You know, honestly, it was more of an impact on, I think, uh, um, Pigpen was much more of an impact on the choice to move. Although Jerry became more dedicated to his future Grateful Dead bandmates like Pigpen and Bob Weir, he always kept his passion for bluegrass, even to his final days. One of the last studio recordings that became an outtake that Jerry and the Grateful Dead did was a bluegrass standard. You mentioned the Whiskey in the Jar, which I, I've, I made strong note of that same note in the, that box set. You know, that all of a sudden in 95, he pulls out this, you know, pretty serious folk revival tune that the dead never did. And in fact, I don't even think he had really performed that live in any configuration. What is the name of that? Whiskey in the Jar, it's Whiskey called. Whiskey in the Jar? <clears throat> yeah, right. I haven't heard that one in 30 years. Yeah, now. right. I haven't either. I just remembered it. So what was he listening to when he heard Whiskey in the Jar in his head that day? And, and you know, that's the kind of stuff I have those same questions. And I think it's fascinating.
My guest this week is Brian Mixis. He spearheaded this incredible project. He also provided the liner notes for Before the Dead. It's a collection of Jerry Garcia's earliest known performances. Uh, the box set came out just earlier this month on the 11th, and as the title implies, all of the recordings come from the period before Jerry Garcia co-founded The Grateful Dead. Mixis is a huge fan of The Grateful Dead and Jerry Garcia. You can read, see, and definitely hear his appreciation for this music and the band on Before the Dead. It was just something that I wanted to do because I wanted to learn about it. I wanted to find out more about these tapes. I wanted to find out where they came from, who were these other people that were involved, you know, why were they doing it? I, I sort of had this idea that, you know, clearly this music functioned and has a function in understanding Grateful Dead music in some way. And so I guess if there was a, if there was a light bulb that turned on for me, that's what it was, and I needed to understand it a little better. And so I figured probably the way to do it is just to dig deep and follow all the trails. Listening to Dead Air with Corey Daniels. Big thanks to my guest this week, Brian Mixis. He provided the liner notes and he also spearheaded the uh, box set Before the Dead. This is Jerry Garcia's recordings back before he co-founded the Grateful Dead. So you get a lot of Jerry Garcia's rich and fruitful uh influences and inspiration that he had uh, going through his bluegrass folk stage. So big thanks to Brian Mixes. Check out the box set Before the Dead. Early recordings of Jerry Garcia. What I took away from, from doing this set and what I hope everybody will take away that gets it is a much more clear understanding of how deep Garcia's songbook is. You know, where the inspiration for what became ultimately the Hunter Garcia songwriting team, uh, you know, when Working Man's Dead and American Beauty and, you know, you, the, 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 probably the coining of Americana comes from. You know, you listen to these murder ballads and some of this stuff that comes from the Harry Smith anthology and realize that this is what he was studying as a teenager. You know, this was, certainly he was listening to rock and roll before that, but these were stories about, um, you know, American, these were American stories. You know, these were, you know, there were people that had lives and, and had tragedies. Um, and for some reason, <laughs> there were more tragedies than positive stories. But nonetheless, that's, you know, these stories stuck with him and became, I think, a huge source of inspiration for a lot of things that they wrote together. <laughs> 